Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to the Courage to Change a Recovery podcast. My name is Ashley Lowe Blassingame, and I am your host. Today, we are talking to Dr. Ken Starr. Dr. Starr is an authority in the field of addiction medicine and wellness. Since founding his clinic in 2002, after the overdose of his brother, he has been committed to helping patients achieve lasting sobriety and improve the quality of their lives. Dr. Starr utilizes medications, supplements, traditional and non-traditional therapies that help people overcome chemical dependency and live the lives they know are possible. His current areas of interest include advancing drug and alcohol detox methods, facilitating long-term recovery, IV nutritional programs for optimal health, and men's health programs. Dr. Starr's passion about NAD therapy has enabled the clinic to become the most experienced provider of NAD treatments on the West Coast. He has introduced nutritional IV infusions to the practice so all patients can affordably and comfortably work towards their wellness goals. Dr. Starr is board certified in addiction medicine and emergency medicine. He takes a personal and compassionate interest in each of his patients and is easily available for patients and their families at all times. Dr. Starr is also the medical director for Lion Rock Recovery, and he has a wonderful YouTube channel that you can find and subscribe to where he makes videos answering all sorts of questions about ways to treat addiction and particularly different types of medical treatment and biohacking addiction recovery. Please see his YouTube channel, Ken Starr with two R's, K-E-N-S-T-A-R-R-M-D for more information. And I hope you enjoy this awesome episode that dives into addiction medicine and wellness and any questions that you have, Dr. Starr would be happy to answer. Please see his contact information in the show notes. All right, episode 26, let's do this. Ken Starr, welcome to the Courage to Change a Recovery podcast. Thank you for having me. So you are Lion Rock Recovery's medical director. You have been with us. How long has it feels like? Oh, since um, maybe 2013, 2014, yeah. something like that. A good amount of time. Maybe sooner, maybe 2012. <laughs> <laughs> we, we, we don't know what, what year we're in. Well, awesome. So can you give us a little bit of background about your you know, give us a little bit of your resume, your professional background. Yeah, sure. Thanks, Ashley. Well, I, I am the current medical director for Lion Rock. And that is a funny story how that came to be because I had a counselor who was working for me, who was also working for Lion Rock when it first got started. That's right. And then Larry's name was Larry. And then Larry, I think Peter and Ian had said, hey, we need a medical director. And then Larry's like, well, I just know this guy. And then they called me and like, yeah, sure. So that was it. <laughs> so it's pretty unofficial. But yeah, so I basically, I'm from El Paso, Texas. And I did my undergraduate at University of Colorado at Boulder. I went back to Texas for medical school and did emergency medicine, studied emergency medicine and practiced. So the first 10 years of my career was, was definitely emergency medicine and EMS. And I lived and practiced in Eugene, Oregon, where I was uh, really involved in just EMS and pre-hospital care administration and was a medical director for a lot of fire districts and critical care transport companies. And in fact, Reach Air Ambulance Service, which is out of 
I think Santa Rosa, I was the Oregon medical director for REACH. So, and then when we moved to California around 2010, I was with a group, uh, AR group, and just kind of started, you know, to get into addiction medicine a little bit, which is a whole different story, and have transitioned to addiction medicine the last, uh, I guess, the last eight years now. I still Are do you... emergency medicine part-time, but less and less every year. Oh, part-time emergency medicine. Part-time. Moon, moonlighting, just as a hobby. Yeah, just like one shift, well, maybe like anywhere from two to four shifts a month. Okay, okay. Got to pay the bills, that's all. It's, pre- it's pretty part-time. It's good. Keep it fresh. So were, are you one of those people who wanted to go to medical school since you were a kid, like knew what you were going to do? Or No, I wanted to be a fireman when I was a kid, for sure. And then in college, uh, no, in high school, I took a biology class that was just blew me away. I had a great teacher, like AP biology, and was super interested in that. And then when I started college, I think I applied to University of Colorado and I applied into the business school and didn't get in and then got into molecular biology and loved molecular biology. And that was my degree. And I thought I wanted to do molecular biology the first couple of years. And then I took an EMT class and then I worked as an EMT and I loved that. And then I got a job in the ER and I, and then I got a job in an ambulance. And then I was bringing patients to the hospital and talking to ER docs. And I was like, I want that job. <laughs> so then, I, then I went to medical school. But once I started medical school, I wanted, I knew I wanted to do emergency medicine. Right. For sure. What, do you, what do you like about it? Oh, I like the variety. I like the shift work. I like being part of a team. I like the the intensity. You know, I, I, yeah. I like the intensity and, and I'm really, I'm, I'm, I'm a good memorizer and ER is good for just memorization. Like if this do that, if this do right. that, right. you know, you know, that game you had when you were a little kid and like, it was a big hopscotch board and you lifted up a cover and it'd be like an apple and you lifted up another cover and it would be like yeah. a jelly bean and yeah. you lifted up another cover and it was an, you had to remember where the two apples were. Yeah. That's yeah. all emergency medicine is. It's like remembering like, what did you do for this? Do that. Right. So, um, so I, I just liked emergency medicine. I loved pre-hospital care and I love paramedic education and EMS development. And so I, I love it. I, I thought it was great. But actually, when, and I probably would still do it. But then when I moved to California, those opportunities kind of dried up. And the reason is because in Oregon, every single, every single department had its own medical director. And in California, every county has a medical director. Oh, wow. Okay. So not so, as many jobs. Yeah. So I was, I had like 12 agencies that I was a medical director for. And then I moved down to San Luis Obispo and there's just one county medical director, period. So it, it just kind of changed. And then I kind of got a little bit burnt out on emergency mess. And then I started addiction. So did you know any addict, like when you, where'd you, you grew up in El Paso. In El Paso, growing up, did you know any addicts or alcoholics? And if, if so, what did you think about that? Like what were, what were your perceptions about addiction growing up? Well, that's a great question. You know, I didn't first, well, firsthand, I mean, my parents were, 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 you know, didn't have any substance abuse problems, but you know, when in El Paso, Texas, when I grew up in the, you know, eighties, my brother, so I had a brother named Sander who was a year older than me. I was born in 69. He was born in 68. Anyway, so when we went through high school, like say seventh, eighth grade, you know, it was very popular in Texas. Like everybody was drinking, everyone was smoking pot. Mm -hmm. And of course I did that too, but he started to get, you know, edgier and edgier and got really into punk rock and got really, you know, smoking cigarettes and just drinking a lot. And then by say ninth or 10th grade, he was with a totally different group of people than I was. So even though my friends were, you know, partying a little bit, you know, we were in band and we were, you know, doing well in school. And, and then he just kind of started to hang out with a very alternative group that punk rock skating. And then, so my brother was the first person who had a substance abuse problem. So he 
started using heroin in high school. So, okay. So let's, let's back up just a little bit. Were you, you know, a lot of the time we don't know most, we get a lot of information about addicts and alcoholics through the media, particularly I'm sure in the eighties where that like, this is, you know, a choice that people make, they're bad, they're lazy, they're hedonistic, all these things. Right. And then most of us come into contact with someone we love who ends up suffering as a result of alcoholism addiction and get a better understanding of what's going on that it that it doesn't quite fit this this like bad bad person mold we thought with your brother it sounds like you guys were really close you know did if you had perceptions about addiction and drug use how did your brother going in that direction affect what you believed and what, you know, what were your thoughts about that? Were you, did it change um, your belief system? You know, I didn't fully understand addiction and change my belief system until I started practicing addiction medicine. Okay. So even though my brother was suffering, you know, as he suffered more, we just became less in contact. Right. So the last 10 years, I mean, I would hear from him once a year. I might see him every couple of years. So we weren't close. And I still probably held on to those descriptors that you described where, you know, drug addicts really just need to get their life together. It's all self-induced. They're making bad choices. And I, you know, and I didn't learn any better in my, in my medical school training. I didn't learn any better in my emergency medicine training. Mm -hmm. And until I started taking care of substance abuse patients, and then started really getting interested in it and then reading about it and then reading the people who wrote this book and then, you know, getting involved in programming and getting involved in medications. I'm embarrassed to say that I, I, I was I was board certified in addiction medicine before I really understood addiction. I that, mean, that's, that's pretty no, late to the party. No, I I really appreciate you saying that. I really appreciate you saying that because like more than you know, because I... I'm at an MBA program at Johns Hopkins and uh, for healthcare management, and all of my peers are doctors, and a couple of them are pain management specialists and different, you know, different specialties. And I am horrified yeah. with, I mean, truly, I mean, particularly the pain management ones. I really, really, I'm, I, I, I cannot believe the lack of training or talking about this topic. And as someone who, you know, is in recovery and has gone through that, and we have so much information, which we'll get into about alcoholism and addiction as a brain disease, it feels crazy to me that that isn't taught, you know, that, that, that this, I mean, these people are brilliant. There's, you know, it's not, it's not an intelligence issue. It's a, it's an information issue. And so I, I really appreciate you saying that because I think that I, because I see it, I see that to be the case is like a lot of people until they have extensive knowledge and experience in with the population, they truly don't understand. And a lot of the time they think they do. And doctors are the worst actually, because they don't understand addiction at all. Yeah, I mean, look at the whole buprenorphine waiver, right? The government gave gives out this data two thousand waiver to get people X certified, and doctors don't even want to do it. I mean, they they don't have enough people signing up. Which thank goodness that's changed, and we'll probably talk about that. And they're extending yeah. that to med levelers and physicians assistants, and they're you know decreasing the the patient number limit. They're trying to you know increase access and increase access, but doctors you know are, are not are the worst. 
Yeah. I mean, trying yeah. to teach a doctor new things is hor- hor- horrible. <laughs> it, 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 yeah. I, I, I won't say that, but I'll let you yeah. say it. And emergency medicine doctors, you know, <laughs> now I'm trying to educate. I, I play one of my hats is I try to educate emergency medicine physicians because yeah. I wear both those hats into initiating medication assisted treatment in the ERs and into the jails and so forth. So there's a lot of reluctance in ER docs. And I, look at, I've been in that tribe for 20 years. And I know it's, look, it's not that this is not the place to come. This is not what we do here. Yeah. But you know, we need to we need to rethink that because most patients in the ER are not there for a true medical emergency. You have to do what's right. So, yeah, yeah, addiction is doctors don't get it. What happened that made you shift away from emergency medicine? Well, a couple of things. We had come, we had moved to California. My wife and and I and our son had moved to California in 2010. I gave up a great job. I loved Oregon. I came crying and kicking and screaming. I did not want to move, but. You know, I said I would. And then I started with an ER group in San Luis Obispo that I love the guys individually. I liked all the everyone in the group individually, but just business-wise, I didn't really fit in. I didn't like the business model. I didn't like how they were running the group. And then I just kind of just got a little burnt out, right? I'd already been doing this for, I don't know, 12 years or 11 years or something. And um, then my brother overdosed and died. So then I don't know if, if it was just that, but something changed and I just... Like, where are we sending people? Like, who in town is taking care of drug and alcohol patients? No one, right? Who, what are we doing about this? Like, where am I going to send people? And the ER has just been like, okay, here's some medicines, good luck. Oh, you need, oh, you're in withdrawal. Okay, well, here's some medicines that could be helpful, good luck. You know, not ever knowing the other side of that, which is like, none of those patients did well with that plan. So I, one of my best friends is an addiction psychiatrist in Portland, and he had been doing some Suboxone. And like most ER docs and like most docs in general, I was like, well, what's that? You know, how do you do it? So he says, okay, it's all you have to do. <laughs> just start doing this. So I, I thought, you know what? I just felt this compel, this was this, this compelling thing. It's like, I, I have to do this. And it was never even really a conscious decision. I just basically, there was a primary care doctor down the street from my house. And I just went to him. I'm like, I didn't even know him. I'm like, hey, can I rent like maybe your office, maybe one couple hours a week? He's like, yeah, sure. So then I just put out advertisements. I got my waiver, did my training. I put out advertisements. This is probably back in 2011. I said, okay, Suboxone, you know, uh, Suboxone prescriptions available, opiate detox, whatever. And I felt comfortable doing that just because, you know, in emergency medicine, we've been taking care of drug and alcohol patients for so many years. Oh, yeah. So uh, it's really just, honestly, it's just fake it till you make it. And I I had people come in and I was like, okay, let's, you know, take good care of you. And and, um, it was just a small shop. And then after about, a year or so, I had a very chance encounter with a lady named Juliana Backett, who was in recovery and had a lot of experience with groups. She had done, she had been in, you know, treatment, treatment coordinator and a counselor. She was like, oh, let's team up and all, you know, you can start doing groups and you can start doing alcohol patients. And I was like, yeah, sure. So then we teamed up, got a little bit bigger office. She was in charge of programming in groups. And then I just did more medication, more medication treatment, and then took on alcohol patients and took on other substance abuse and just read what I could and learned what I could. And I enjoyed it. I really enjoyed it. And I was just non-judgmental, very approachable, easygoing, take really good care of people. And then it just built and built it and built it. And then um, I guess fast forward now, seven years later, and we, you know, we're car for credited, we're state licensed. We have a 4,000 square foot facility. We're the biggest, probably the largest private provider of substance abuse in three counties, right? I mean, the biggest, yeah. I mean, between LA and San Francisco, I mean, we're probably the biggest shop in town. So I love it. It's great. I don't know. I, I, I guess... 
it just so happened. And I don't know, it was just, I guess it was just an occurrence of like the timing was right because yeah. I got into this right before the opiate epidemic really became national. Right. There's right. a, a lot of national attention. Yeah. So as, as there was more and more resources and, and attention being shifted to the opiate epidemic, all of a sudden I was already teed up like, okay, I'm the guy in town. I'm board certified right. in addiction medicine. And I, you know, so that was really lucky. And I just, I don't know. I just love doing it. I take great care of people. And I think that's really this, the recipe, right? Is just take good care of people and be passionate about what you do and do the right thing. And I, well, I guess we've expanded services since then, of course. So we do more than drug and alcohol now, but that's what happened. It's just meeting people where they are. And there wasn't any resources before, before me, patients had to either go to the county to get drug and alcohol, which they would only get if they were Medi-Cal or Syncal, or they had to go to a go away to a private residential program. I mean, there was no real outpatient medication treatment. Yeah. yeah. So I want to touch on a couple things. I want to talk about some of the cool stuff that you're doing, um, alternative, different alternative. I'm super into that and interested in all the alternative things you're doing. And I also want to talk to you um, because I think it'd be interesting to, to people listening. I want to talk to you about some of the beliefs that people in recovery or people in, you know, in the recovery field have about medication assisted treatment. And I want to ask you some, you know, questions that usually come up behind the backs of the medication assisted treatment doctors and see if we can get some like clarity because I think I th- I, whenever I, you know, learn more, I, you know, if I'm trying to understand when I'm in judgment, I can't, you know, I'm not understanding. So I want to work on some of that, but talk to us a little bit about some of the stuff that you're doing. So you're doing Suboxone, you have NAD, um, a ketamine program. Sounds awesome. What, what, what kind of stuff do you guys do? Well, the first thing we started doing was NAD. So going back and, to, and so for people who don't know what that is, um, NAD is nicotinamide adenine dinucleotide, and it's basically a natural coenzyme that's in every mitochondrial cell of your body. And it's really sort of the fuel for energy production of your nervous system and, and, of, your, and of your cellular being is NAD. And of course, I always learned NAD is just like your ATP cycle, your pyruvate cycle. You, you make, to make ATP, you need NAD. But it turns out that NAD is this very powerful um, modulator for over 400 known processes from immune system to sleep, to anti-aging, to oxidative stress, to protecting telomeres I and mean, all these other things. So why, why aren't we all taking this? Well, we should, we should all be taking NAD and, it, and it's blowing up. And I was going to say that, you know, when we first started all of our drug, you know, our only indication was for substance abuse, but now over half of our patients are just wellness. But in any event, I, I, the story with NAD is, and I'll try to make it short, but I had a patient, one of my opiate patients was, he said, I'm going to go do this, you know, brain restoration therapy. And of course, I was very skeptical. Of course, I was like, yeah, okay, whatever. What is that? Like a little fairy dust on your head or something. And he, he came back, you know, saw him a month later. He was fine. He was great. His detox felt great. Didn't have any cravings. And he got my attention. I'm like, okay, where did you go? Now, what's it called? So he told me about this NAD program. And, and I basically kind of called somebody and then called somebody and had to wiggle my way into, into, um, Dick Medier's program. And Dick Medier runs Springfield Wellness Center in Springfield, Louisiana. He's sort of the kind of the father of NAD in this country in terms of refining it and administering it. And, and I went and I trained with him. And sure enough, I mean, I 
had been, I had had several years of experience now detoxing patients. And then what I saw in that clinic blew me away. I mean, if you give IV NAD, it alleviates withdrawal and craving. Like it really does. Like so, immediate, imme- yeah, so, so just, immediately. So I'm, I'm coming in, I am detoxing. You hook me up to this IV and my, my, that goes away. It significantly or, improves. Wow. It significantly improves. And and I'm not exaggerating, but you know, we were detoxing patients off high levels of methadone, high levels of opiates with very minimal withdrawal symptoms with NAD. And wow. after a period of say a week, 10 days, they're walking out feeling great. So it blew me away. I remember flying back on the plane thinking, I'm gonna change the face of addiction treatment nationally with this. This is incredible. So we started our NAD program in around 20, I think that was like 2013 or 2014. And then of course we've been doing it since. So, but anyway, we started doing NAD. It's been very popular. We can talk more about that. But then because I had nurses here doing IV infusions of NAD, I had one of my nurses who just so happens, a really wonderful lady who passed away last year, but she was very experienced with just IV nutritional therapy. Like, why aren't you giving, you know, vitamins? Why aren't you giving amino acids? Why aren't you giving glutathione? Why aren't you doing vitamin C? Why aren't you doing... Yeah. And I was like, what's that? What do you do? So she she turned me on to that. And I I learned, I learned all about that field. I, you know, studied with Virginia Osborne. I've, you know, I've been hanging around with the gurus of IV, you know, nutritional medicine for the last, you know, six years. So of course we started an infusion program and then found out, wow, if I give my detoxers these calming amino acids, it helps a lot. If I give my alcoholic patients high doses of these B vitamins and other things, it helps a lot. And they're, being, they're feeling so much better, so much faster. So it really took off. And then so we kind of got known as this very unique clinic that's doing natural, you know, uh, yeah. alternative medicine with traditional medicine because I'm still giving benzos or, you know, anticonvulsants and standard of care meds. In fact, NAD's gotten a little bit of bad attention lately because then then it's gotten so popular. Now everyone can just do NAD and people are going into detox at these, you know, naturopathic centers who know nothing about substance abuse or withdrawal and having medical complications because they don't know how to handle detox and withdrawal with or without NAD. So anyway, so then, and then because of, we were already doing infusions and then we started our ketamine program, I think last year and ketamine has been a game changer as well. So now we do all these sorts of really amazing things. What? So, so, you know, I am a novice in this area. Ketamine to me is just a good night with some friends. So what are you guys doing with it that we yeah, missed out on? Yeah. Well, you know, so ketamine is used medically now for a number of mental health problems and specifically treatment resistant depression. So ketamine is profoundly effective for treatment resistant depression. What does that mean? Someone who's depressed, who's been on one or more antidepressants, they haven't worked that well. I mean, don't forget that only about 30% of people respond to oral antidepressants. I mean, most people don't get better with them, despite some people do. That's great. So ketamine, which has been used since the 60s as a you know anesthetic, was found out, was found maybe, I don't know, 15 years ago. 20 years ago to be an antidepressant. Like people would wake up from their ketamine-induced anesthesia and they wouldn't be depressed. So uh, as you know, because these ketamine clinics are popping up everywhere, that ketamine is a very powerful tool. So it not only treatment-resistant depression, but it's very useful for certain types of pain syndromes. It's very helpful for certain types of pain syndromes that are centrally mediated, like fibromyalgia, reflex sympathetic dystrophy, um, complex regional pain syndrome, neuropathic pain. It's very helpful. And, and other mental health problems like anxiety, PTSD, 
uh, all, all can get significantly improved with ketamine. So we started our ketamine program, but you know what? Ketamine also alleviates opiate withdrawal and ketamine also helps re-regulate alcohol impulsivity. And so we're using it now for drug and alcohol patients because it reframes their maladaptive decision-making by this central reset. So tell me, okay, two questions about that. Uh, The first question is, what is the program? Do you give it to them once and then they're better for life? They have to take it weekly? Like what, what is the ketamine and how is it administered? Yeah, yeah. So the ketamine is IV. We use it uh, IV. We follow the, the kind of the, the main National Institute of Mental Health protocol, which is about six infusions. So our protocol specifically actually is six infusions over two or three weeks. So that's two to three infusions a week for two or three weeks to to total six. It's an escalating dose of ketamine that's basically weight-based initially that goes up every time. Some of the more research, some of the most, correction, some of the most recent research shows that only about 30% of people at best get a response with that first infusion. The same with the second and the third. In fact, commonly we'll see people get worse with the second and the third. I don't know why. And then by the fifth or sixth, we have a close to an 80% response rate, a significantly improved response rate. And this is a self-report uh, depression response? Right. This is this is self-reported, but we'll use like a PHQ-9. We'll use something called a mood monitor where people can check okay. in. And then the answer is, so the, the first question is, yeah, it's, it's called induction. We try to do six infusions over a period of two or three weeks. Then the question is, did it work? How well it worked? And how long is it going to last? Most people will need a booster anywhere from one to three months later. And you're right, it does wear off. It's not a permanent solution. Okay, so, okay. So um, although it can be a permanent solution for some people because it does stimulate like axonal, what's called axonal growth and nerve cell growth. It's actually, you can see MRI pictures of how ketamine like makes these new dendritic spines on your nerve cells reach wow. out. But uh, so p- some people get a longer term benefit, but honestly, it buys you time. So yeah. it's, bu- yeah, it's yeah, buying yeah. you time. It's buying you time to try, maybe try a different medication. It's buying you time to do more programming or therapy. Um, I met with a group in, in San Francisco that's doing ketamine assisted therapy, where even just during the ketamine infusion, you can process, you can get to a deeper layer. Now, now we're using sub-dissociative doses. So to go back to your original question, when when people are abusing recreational ketamine, most of them are in this K-hole, they're they're out to lunch, right? Yeah. Yeah, Well, there's a a continuum. So very low doses, it's sort of just relaxing and more calming and so forth. And as you get higher and higher and higher up, you can get obviously general anesthesia. So all the doses that we use, people are awake, they're alert, they're responsive. They're not, I'm not going to say it's not enjoyable, but it's, it's not, they're not totally tripping out. Yeah. Yeah. Now does insurance cover it? No. So insurance does not cover ketamine. Some infusion centers have learned how to bill insurance. And it turns out what they're doing is they're just billing for like an extended office visit. They're billing for an IV infusion. They're billing for cardiac monitoring. They're billing like an injection fee, but there's no code for ketamine because ketamine is not FDA approved to use for this. But last March, you know, S-ketamine or Spravato came out, which is a, a commercially available nasal spray. And really what that's about is that, you know, ketamine is generic. It's been around too long that nobody can make money on it. I mean, a bottle of ketamine is like eight bucks. So 
big business, big pharma, so, you know, how can we make money on this? So they took the S enantiomer, sort of half the molecule, and they studied it, did some trials and said, oh, we can just use this nasal spray. Of course, up to now, we've just been compounding our own nasal spray, taking regular ketamine and putting it in a nasal spray, and there you go. But again, no big pharma is going to make money on that. So we, um, so anyway, they came out with a proprietary product called S-ketamine or Spravato, and now that got FDA approved. And that has a lot of strict prescribing requirements around it. For example, the patient never even touches it. It's administered in the doctor's office. The medicine has to stay in the doctor's office. The patient has to be observed for two hours. All those patients were studied on an antidepressant, and it's supposed to just buy them time. I haven't used it yet, despite submitting over a dozen verification of benefits and trying to get it just because their rollout was so bad. You know, patients to co-pay too high or there's no pharmacy to send it to us or blah, blah, blah. But the best studies show that it either is not that effective or maybe, maybe a little effective, but certainly not as good as ketamine. So my preference is you know, do an infusion of ketamine, right? Do, you do the series and see if they get better. If that works and they get some traction with it, then let's get them on Spravato or nasal spray or lozenge or something else to maintain them. And if it doesn't work or if they didn't get a big response from it, I wouldn't bother with S-ketamine nasal spray. Hi, I'm Peter Loeb, CEO and co-founder of Lion Rock Recovery. We're proud to sponsor The Courage to Change, and I hope you find that it's an inspiration. I was inspired to start Lion Rock after my sister lost her own struggle with drugs and alcohol back in 2010. Because we provide care online by live video, LionRock clients can get help from the privacy of home. We offer flexible schedules that fit our clients' busy lives. And of course, we're licensed and accredited, and we accept most private health insurance. You can find out more about us at lionrockrecovery.com or call us for a free consultation, no commitment, at 800-258-6550. Thank you. So... Let's talk a little bit about Suboxone. So Suboxone in, you know, in the recovery field, what we call <clears throat> medication-assisted treatment, MAT, is mostly Suboxone at this point. Is that accurate? Yeah, the term mostly refers to Suboxone. It refers, but it refers to that. To, yeah, it also refers to Vivitrol, Naltrexone. Right, right, right. right. other FDA-approved medications. You know, from my perspective, one of the things, you know, I I, I was a heroin addict and, and uh, you know, in my day, we... we had a bottle of Buprenex. And so we would use that in between. And and so, you know, some of this stuff was, it was a little bit different, but it was around. And I, you know, I wonder, I have to wonder about people who are on Suboxone long-term. And I know that's a, it's probably a really uneducated stance for lack of a better term. But for me, I'm so grateful that I was able to get off opiates and not be on them again. And I know a lot of people who were put on Suboxone long-term and they struggle so hard to get completely off of it. I think it's it seems to be an amazing tool for detox. Can you talk about what is it, what is the value and, and the controversy around, are we just using this to get people addicted to another opiate to get them on something else, you know, can you straighten some of those ideas out? Well, I think if somebody has a, if somebody has an idea of what they decide it is, I don't think I'm going to switch, you know, change their mind, but buprenorphine is a life-saving tool. So 
we use a lot of buprenorphine. I guess the conversation is, say an opiate-dependent patient comes into the office. Yeah. I can tell you that of all those patients who say to me, I, you know, I don't want to do Suboxone, I don't want to do Methadone, just detox me. You just yeah. give me med for detox. Yeah, yeah. Here, here, here's my spiel. I can do that. If I want to, if, if you want to do that, I will do that. I can prescribe. There's, there's a half a dozen medicines that are phenomenal for opiate withdrawal, right? Uh, gabapentin, hydroxazine, you know, tizanidine, clonidine, lofexidine. We can do that. Let's do it your way if you want, okay? Mm-hmm. Let's, let's give you detox meds. I can tell you that 99% of the time I've tried that or the last 10 years, it doesn't work. The detox meds don't work? Those, they don't work. Those patients don't stay clean. Oh, they don't stay clean long-term. They don't stay okay. clean. Oh, no, the medicines help. Yeah, but, okay, okay. I was like, oh, they not, don't work? But you're not, but you're not, you're not targeting that chemistry that's been hijacked, right? So here's the thing. I mean, like, I, I, don't have, I have no intention, and I tell patients this day one, I have no intention for you to be on Suboxone long-term, okay? It is a tool, okay? But here's a tool that a, a young mother or a professional or somebody comes in who's addicted to opiates, I can say, okay, I can detox you with NAD. I and mean, we can do a 10-day NAD detox if you want to do that because I really feel like that alleviates your withdrawal, it'll alleviate your craving, and then I'll give you the head start. So that's absolutely on, on, on the menu. But the thing about buprenorphine is that it meets people where they are. They can immediately feel good. They feel okay. They get, we get traction of that neurochemistry. Here, here's the way I like to think. It took them years and years and years for that neurobiology and that neurochemistry to get hijacked and change, such that it's way up here now for them to feel normal, okay? When you're in an airplane at 40,000 feet, you don't feel any different than you do on ground. I mean, they need to be at 40,000 feet now to feel normal, okay? So the thing with buprenorphine is I can get that traction, I can get control, they can feel good. And what's good about buprenorphine, and I'll try to explain this better, is that you're not just trading you know, gin for whiskey. Okay. You're not, you're not. Buprenorphine has a lot of properties that make it safer, that make it easier to taper off of than traditional opiates. So the role of buprenorphine is within 24 hours, I can put somebody on a medicine and boom, they feel good. They can get their life back. They can go to work. They can start being honest. They can participate in a program of recovery. They can start to rebuild relationships. They're not sick. They can participate meaningfully in activities. And when they're when it's prescribed correctly, and a lot of people don't do it that way, but when it's prescribed correctly, those doses go down and down and down slowly over time, and we can get people off. And just for, for comparison, say a standard dose of Suboxone might be like 8 to 16 milligrams of buprenorphine. Somebody comes into a program. I, I try to get people down to 0.125 milligrams when they're done, and at that point, they're just you know, they're just walking away from it. I mean, so it's part of a program. It does require a plan. It does require an exit strategy. Now, do I have people that do it their own way and just, do we just use detox? Do we use Suboxone for detox, uh, say a one or two week program? Yes, absolutely. If we can, do I have people who have been on buprenorphine for 10 years? Yes. So not that I say you have to be on this for the rest of your life. It's because they say, you know what? I have never felt this good. I feel normal. My life's perfect. I'm not depressed. I'm not anxious. I'm not lying. I'm not cheating. I'm not stealing. I'm not shooting up. Don't make me come off this. So everybody's unique. Everybody has a different philosophy. I've been the residential, I've been a medical director for residential programs where we did just have, you know, two, three week tapers and that yeah. works for some people. But but, it, you, but know, you found that it wasn't, it wasn't sufficient. Is that? I would say, I mean, the relapse is definitely higher if you detox somebody off Suboxone because look, if they didn't get to where they are in two or three weeks, 
you know? So my preferred way of, of prescribing Suboxone, just because I'm going to get lots of questions and emails about this, my preferred, <laughs> way, is, my preferred way is just get, get, the, get on the lowest amount you feel okay. And when you're rock solid stable, your mood's good, you're not craving, you're not relapsing, your energy's good, your sleep's good, then go down, just go down a tick. And that changes on, depending on the dose you're on. That's probably beyond the scope of this. But you know, if you're on four, 16 milligrams, let's go to 14 milligrams. And because buprenorphine, again, it's, it's only partially activating at that opiate receptor. And it's very long acting. You're talking about a 37-hour half-life. So when you tell somebody to go down from 16 to 14, that's easy. They do fine with it. Okay. When you have someone go from 14 to 12, that's easy. And you warn them, look, you're going to have a week. You're going to feel a little irritable. You're going to feel a little anxious. It's going to go away. You're going to be fine. And then it's, so it's not a fast program, but allows somebody to get stable on the medicine and gradually taper off. Now, I'm not going to say that Suboxone withdrawal isn't legit. I mean, it's horrible. If you're on 60 milligrams a day and you stop cold turkey, you're going to be sick as snot, but it's, 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 it has a role. It just ha- it has a role. And, and I'm sensitive. Everyone comes in differently. Everyone's got a different biology. Everybody's got a, gen- a different genetic makeup. I have people who can do, you know, two or three weeks of Suboxone and come off it and they do terrific. So let's give them that chance. I'm fine with that. But a lot of people don't. A lot of people need a longer term program. Some of it might be, you know, a reward deficiency syndrome. How many people are on anti? How many people are on Prozac 20 years later? Oh, for sure. For sure. I mean, I mean, really, it's like, okay. The logic is, is, you know, questionable. Right. So it's like, have there been any studies on Prozac 20, 30 years out? I mean, it was never designed for that. Right. I mean, the best studies I know showed that a year out people who who were off antidepressants did better. So, I mean, there's no time frame. So, you know, and the other thing is, you know, don't forget that, you know, opiates are better antidepressants than antidepressants. Opiates are better mood stabilizers than mood stabilizers. I mean, so opiates have all these properties. They're not just pain medicines. So, which is why they're so addicting, right? I mean, they're not, it's not just, it's just a pain medicine. They make, they make everything better for the right person, right? Yeah. So if you're, if you're vulnerable, if yes, you have that, yes, connect, they do. They make everything's better. So if somebody needs a low level, you know, two milligrams, a milligram Except of for digestion. Yeah. Well, that's true. They don't make, they don't make, they don't make you poop better. <laughs> no, for sure. Or at all. But, yeah. So, so if somebody needs a low level of buprenorphine to feel normal, I yeah. mean, I'm not going to tell them you have to get off this medicine. No, no, totally. But just know that that's not my intention. And I tell yeah. patients, day one, look at nothing will make me happier than to see you get stable, get down on your dose and get the hell out of here. I, I don't want to see you every month forever. Yeah. I don't. Yeah. I want you to be done with this. So it's really patient-driven and it's patient-centered. And that's the difference. It's patient-centered. So I support the dose reductions. I guide them. I say, okay, if you're on six milligrams, let's try four. If you're on four, let's try three and a half. I mean, they just, I just, here's your homework when you're ready for it. Here's your homework. If you're going to stop cold turkey four milligrams, that's not what I'm recommending. It doesn't yeah. go well. I've um, learned a bit about naltrexone, which sounds like a miracle drug. Can you tell us a little bit about that and, and what you've, maybe some stories about what you've seen with it too? Yeah, well, naltrexone is an opiate receptor blocker. Naltrexone refers to the oral pill, but there's a long-acting shot of naltrexone called Vivitrol. And Vivitrol is approved for both alcohol use disorder and opiate use disorder. And I'll explain how it works. For opiates, it's real straightforward, right? It's a blocker. So once somebody is detoxed off of opiates, you can give them a shot in the ass of Vivitrol, which is a, which is a month-long blocker. That's basically actually a 30-day insurance policy. Because once that's in their butt, for 30 days, they are not going to get high. They can do whatever they want. They're blocked. It's an opiate so, blocker. So that means that if they were to take a shot of heroin, they would feel zip. Yep. Once, you know, not 
five seconds after the shot, but you know, you know, hours, several hours later, once it had takes some effect, it's actually a um, a chemical compound that absorbs moisture, then peaks about you know fourteen days, and then gradually you know goes down. But yeah, once that's in them, it's a twenty eight day insurance policy. So for somebody say who's who's detoxed and they do the idea is you, know, you do that shot for for six months or nine months or a year. Yeah. Yeah. And give, give them some clean time, right? Because they're, they're going to challenge it. They're going to test it, but they're going to realize, wow, that really wasn't worth it. Didn't do anything. So that's how it's used for opiate use disorder. For alcohol use disorder, interestingly, it's used because the final common pathway for people to feel really good on alcohol is, is also dopamine and receptor, opiate receptor mediated. So what that means is when you give an alcoholic Vivitrol or naltrexone, it blocks the reinforcing and rewarding aspects of alcohol. So it doesn't affect intoxication, doesn't make them sick like an abuse, but it, what it does, the way Alex explains it, it just doesn't give them that really super feel good. So what happens is the way it's best explained to me by patients is, you know, they'll pour the second and not finish it. And the way to think about it is like, if you're not going to get, because we all have a subconscious relationship with alcohol. And if you're an alcoholic, that feel good, relax, it gets fun. I'm checking out. I deserve this. Um, <laughs> this is how I cope. This is my special place. That is big and powerful and overwhelming. And what's really small and minimized at is you know, this is poison. It's making me depressed. It's making me anxious. Yeah. It's making me fat. I'm socially isolating. I'm compromising my relationships. I'm doing shitty at work. We don't think about that. We just think like, hey, this is good. So when you have Vivitrol in your system, you don't think, and all of a sudden you don't really feel good. Yeah. I mean, feel, you don't really get that feel, feel super really good feeling. And you're just going to get fat and depressed and, and drunk. Like if I'm just going to get fat and, and depressed, I don't want it. I don't want it. So one of the mantras that I tell my alcohol patients who are struggling, is like, okay, every time you take this drink, you can drink. Okay, actually you can go drink. <laughs> but before every drink, I want you to say, when you drink, I want, I want you to say, I want to be fat, tired, and depressed. I, I want mean, you to be, I want, no, I, I, I want you. Okay. As you drink, you're, you're, you're saying to yourself, I want to be fat and tired and depressed. That's what I'm doing to my, that's what I'm nourishing myself with. And, you know, being, you know, that mantra is really the truth, not the truth as, oh, I deserve this. I'm a professional. I've, you know, I'm successful and I reward myself by drinking a bottle of wine because I'm awesome. <laughs> and so Vivitrol kind of helps you make that decision. Okay. So, anyway, okay. so Vivitrol and naltrexone are both used for opiates and alcohol. Okay. Anyway, anyway and, and, and in summary, I love, I love Vivitrol for my early opiate recovery. Say we've detoxed somebody with or without buprenorphine or with or without NAD. We've detoxed them. I'd love for them to get that shot in the butt for 30 days because I want them to do it for, for three months, for six right. months, for nine months because I know that their recovery is going strong. So it's just an insurance policy. And, you know, you don't have to do it, but I like it. And, and as a parent, I would love if my, you know. Oh, yeah. My son oh, yeah. Yeah. I have seen that naltrexone was being used for binge eating disorder and um, food cravings. Is that something that you see? Yeah. Yeah. We, we here at the clinic don't really treat process addiction so much. Like, you know, we don't specifically have eating disorders, but there is a medication called Contrave that has naltrexone in it. And I think it's buprin, well, butrin. So it's a, it's a antidepressant that has a stimulant as a, um, an appetite suppressant property, and it has naltrexone. So the idea with that is it's going to decrease the rewarding and, what's the word? The rewarding effects of eating. So if somebody who has a binge eating disorder also gets a dopamine surge with eating. So the idea is you could use naltrexone and it would reduce the reinforcing and rewarding effects of eating. 
as well. And so, yeah, you could try naltrexone. I know it's used for that. We also even try it for marijuana use because we don't really have a lot of drugs for that. So our marijuana patients will try putting them on naltrexone. And there's some early data that says it might be helpful. So anything that's reinforcing and rewarding might be blunted with naltrexone. So it's not, it doesn't block all the opiate receptors. Don't forget, there's a lot of opiate receptors, but it blocks the one that's most commonly used in substance abuse. So the question is, well, I'm not going to get joy when I work out or go to the gym. I'm not going to get joy when I pick up my grandchild if I'm on, on, on naltrexone. I don't think that's the case. Oh, okay. Think, okay. It doesn't just block everything that's good in your life. So what did you learn that made you change... When you know, you said when, when I became a board certified in addiction, right? That was that was when you had this new understanding. Was there anything that you remember? What did you learn that really cemented for you that this was a medical problem? You know, it's sad that I didn't really fully appreciate the complexities of addiction when my own brother was suffering from it, and I really solved that problem just by distancing myself from him. Yeah, yeah. You know. I think understanding that a lot that most people with some addiction have, you know, trauma history, emotional loss, you know, so it's, I always refer back to that Gabor Mate quote, you don't ask why people have addiction, you ask why they have pain. Yeah, yeah. And just, um, you know, and the reason it's a medical diagnosis, because, because, you know, a medical condition has a predictable time course. Okay. Like asthma, hypertension diabetes or medical problems because we know that untreated untreated diabetes causes this this and this well i can tell you untreated heroin addiction causes this 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 it's going to it's going to result in overdose or incarceration or death or i mean it's a very predictable course too right you're going to lose your job you're going right. to lose your house you're going to lose your family it's just no different so and there's a medical treatment so there's relapse in hypertension there's relapses in in you know obesity management so i i think that the medical nature becomes clear as a physician treating addiction, but it still doesn't help you understand addiction patients unless you understand addiction. So that for me, I think came late, but I, I have a sincere love of the field now. So you think that like learning about how the brain responds, learning about how, how the brain rewires and all of that, even that did... Did any of that change? Well, the neurobiology of, of addiction is is interesting, but I think I think that it, it it is a medical problem, and I think that there are some medical solutions. But as you mentioned, you know, MAT is not medication as treatment; it's medication associated treatment, right? Or assisted medication assisted treatment. Yeah. So you know, people show up. Look, you still, I can, we can get you feeling better with you know X or Y or Z, but you have to do the work of recovery, and we have to, you have to understand why you're chemically coping and why you're you're doing this and what is going on underneath this. So that is the disease of addiction, and that's why it's a medical disease because it's treatable and it has a progressive destructive nature. And I see it every day with my alcohol patients and my opiate patients, right? If you're a drinker, I, I can tell you that, that it plays out uh, It plays out for the same, the same way every single time for everybody, right? It's relationships, job problems, DUI, worse, social isolation, doing less things with your friends. I mean, there's not that many people with a really hardcore alcohol problem who are doing great at work, who have great friends, who are out <laughs> right. hiking, who are in great right. physical shape, who yep. are meeting all their goals, who are, you know, who are running marathons. It's like, you don't, maybe you did. And I always end up, I always, I always ask, what do you do for fun? And they all say, 
things they used to do for fun. But you're not yeah. doing anything for you're not doing anything for fun now if you have a substance use disorder. Anything, because it's because you're using as a full time job, or you yeah. can't wait to get them to drink after work, or you're just looking for, you know, just looking, you know, I mean, heroin addiction is nonstop circle, right? It's like you're all oh, your time, awful. money. Like who, who who can I call? Who's going to answer the phone? Can I go out of town this weekend? Who am I going to stick with? I mean, it's just, it totally, it's not even fun. Like it's not, you're not even getting high. You're just getting to that, you know, 40,000 feet kind of deal. It's like, it really just becomes a survival situation. Right. And so that's the role of buprenorphine too, is that now you can stabilize somebody. Like, I think, I don't know where I read some book that if that vase or is full of just using, like if your whole life is just using, if you can get somebody st- stabilized medically and then you can start filling that face up or that life up with community and relationships and, mm-hmm. and you know, job responsibilities and, and, and gratefulness and other things, people have less desire for drugs. And this has been shown, as you know, in studies with injection use centers in Europe, mm-hmm. yeah. right? You, you, can, you can tell people, you can come here, use every day free heroin. You can come every day. You can just safe injection zone. You shoot up here. It's free. It's supervised. And you know what? Almost all those patients, like 90% of those patients over five years aren't there anymore. Because once the, once the, once the, the structure is provided and they're not suffering, trying to figure out you know, how they're going to lie, cheat, steal, vandalize, whatever, all of a sudden, they're like, now they're holding jobs. Now they're going to work. Now they have good relationships. And as that builds up, they use less and less and less and less. So that's the role of medication-assisted treatment. And that's the role and that's the, you know, anyway, that's kind of one of the stigmas is like, you've got to, you've got to provide people a way out. I, I can't take care of somebody who has an active substance use disorder and put them in programming and say, oh, you just need counseling. Right. No, right. they're, they're going to totally unravel. Right. right. So that's the role of medication. That's, that's the role of buprenorphine. It's like, ah, oh, we can get them stable on something, feeling good. We can taper that down while we do some programming. You do some really cool work in the jails. Tell us about that. Well, there's been really a national, unfortunately, there's been a national outcry the last couple of years about the standard of care of addiction treatment in prison and jails. Which is laughable, right? Because yeah, yeah, yeah. most of the population. Right, right. So like all, all, all these people end up in jail. A lot of them end up in jail. But if you go, you know, up until recently and probably still in most places, if you go into a jail in this country and say you're, you're stable on methadone or you're stable on buprenorphine or you're just, or you're a heroin user, you're going to detox. They're going to death their treatments. They're just going to detox you. There's protocols for detox. Well, that doesn't always go well. And there have been some bad outcomes. And I think there was a federal, there was, I think it was a federal case out of somewhere in the Northwest. I should know more about it, but a judge ordered that you can't, you know, this is a medical disease and you can't withhold medication. So there's a, a big role now with jails um, initiating MAT. And that might mean, look, if somebody comes into jail and they're on Suboxone and they have a provider and they test positive for it, why wouldn't you continue it? Or if somebody comes in on, on methadone, they've been stable on it, why, why wouldn't you continue it? Or better yet, people who come in with a heroin use disorder, you know, heroin, who, who do detox in jail, they're getting shots of Vivitrol now before they leave because that's what happened to my brother. He was in jail for nine months or 10 months. His tolerance went down. He got out of jail in Texas, went to a sober living, used heroin, overdosed and died. So if he would have gotten a Vivitrol shot, that would have been an opportunity to set him up for his next Vivitrol shot, you know, or so enter his me, next. Let me ask a question about that. So if he had gotten a Vivitrol shot or anyone gets a Vivitrol shot and they use, right, to try to test that theory, isn't the amount of opiates in the system enough to repress the the respiratory system, even though you're not getting high? 
No, because you're blocked. I mean, the Vivitrol blocks those opiate, those mu opiate receptors. Oh, so it, 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 it so because it's blocked, it can't do whatever the rest of it, it does, does to your right. does nothing. Now, assuming there's a level in your system, right? So at the very beginning of treatment, like the, you know, if you get a shot and use it a couple hours late, you know, use an hour yeah, later, yeah, it's happened yeah. to one of my patients, unfortunately. Or if you use it, you know, at 31 days and the level's down, then it is going to it's it's going to be effective. But you know, it's a blocker. So okay. if you take somebody who doesn't has no history of opiate use at all. Right, and then you give them and you give them Vivitrol. It doesn't do anything; it has no effect. But if you can give it to somebody as part of a treatment program, it might give them a month. Now, now, sure, if he would have gotten a Vivitrol shot, waited a month, and then used, then he probably still would have overdosed. Right. And died. That's true. But while that had a therapeutic level in his blood, he he would have been. It, he would have been. It, he would survive it. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it definitely sounds like so. There's there's more there's more medication assisted treatment now happening in county jails, which is good. Okay. It's just more humane treatment. It's more appropriate treatment. What do you think about the addiction? I mean, so we have the opioid crisis. However, I, you know, alcohol is still so killing so many people, but, and so many people are going to jail. You know, that's where a lot of people with addiction end up. Do you have uh, thoughts on what we should be doing in terms of treatment or how ways that we can incarcerate fewer people as a result of addiction and help them? You know, do you have like broader views on how we can get out of this? Well, fortunately, fortunately, a lot of cities and counties have learned that you can't arrest your way out of addiction. And I know some cities like Seattle and some, I think it was some city in, in Rhode Island were very progressive in that when people are arrested for substance use issues, like DUI or public intoxication or paraphernalia or possession, they're not they're 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 putting them in treatment. They're not putting right. them in jail. So, yeah, I think I think it's great that in better late than never. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, we've we've incarcerated you know something you know some odd ungodly number of patients, right? And for substance use problems. So yeah, no treatment is 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 what people need. They don't need incarceration because I can tell you because they come out and then they relapse. Because I mean, they have the same tools they went in with. Yeah, or they come out better drug addicts, or they come out, right. you know. Yeah, it, it's not a, a incarceration is not an effective solution for substance use. So I think that counties and states and provinces are all getting that memo, and it's cheaper too. It's cheaper yeah. to put them in treatment than it is to put them in jail. So. <laughs> Yeah. So no, it's great. It's great. And so we, I mean, we have a deferred judgment program here in San Luis Obispo County, where if people are arrested for substance use problems, they get treatment. They don't go to jail. They get a treatment offered to them, or they have to prove some sort of participation in treatment and they can get it off their record. So it's great. It's good. It, it, it's good. And it, it's again, it's late, but I think it's a necessary thing. So I'm glad that the, 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 the incarceration system is, is changing. Yeah. Yeah, me too. So can you tell us a little bit about where your clinic is, where people can find you, more information? Well, sure. You know, I am the medical director for Lion Rock, which is awesome. But you know, know Lion Rock you. doesn't, you know how to find me by email, but you know, Lion Rock is not a medication dispensing institution. So Correct. it's really been more um, educational and, and, and administrative. But so my clinic is in Arroyo Grande, California. So we're just a few minutes outside of San Luis Obispo on the Central Coast. We're halfway between LA and San Francisco. 
the the website is just kenstarmd.com with two r's kenstarmd.com our supplement store so we created a line of supplements called clean which is great and so we've created all basically all the supplements that have used in recovery and detox and post-acute withdrawal we've kind of just decided these what's the best and we made our own supplement line and there's a link from the website but there's also a uh our store, our web store is called getcleansupplements.com, getcleansupplements.com. So that's how you can find me. You can email me from the, from the website or you can email me at ken at kenstarmd.com. And yeah, we have, we have a YouTube channel. So I want everyone to subscribe to my YouTube channel because I only have like 180 subscribers. <laughs> and you can just, you can just check kenstarmd.com. What are you doing on your YouTube channel? You know, we have all sorts of videos and educational videos and what's the difference between this and that and how to get off methadone. And here's what you need to know about Suboxone. And oh, here's, that's here's, awesome. you know, just educational things. It's just kenstarmd Wait, it's on YouTube. Ken Star, Ken Star with two R's, two R's MD. Mm-hmm. On YouTube. on YouTube. Okay. So I want everyone to subscribe. Because everyone we- go and subscribe to Kenstar MD on YouTube and check out. And our clinicians have actually started to post things for recovery. Our counselors That's have really started to cool. answer questions. So, um, and anytime people want us to make a video, like I'll just get an email saying, Hey, can you talk about this? So I'll just give my thoughts on okay. Kratom. Like somebody wants to know about Kratom. So I created a five minute video on Kratom or somebody wants to know about a new drug for detox called Lofexidine. So I wrote a blog and created a video on Lofexidine. So just trying to answer people's questions. And there's just so much misinformation about MAT, yeah. about Suboxone, yeah. about treatment, about Vivitrol. Yep. Everyone, no one, you know, so it's just great to provide education and to answer questions and and um, be featured on wonderful podcasts like this that really help people learn more about the disease of addiction. And I, and I love I love the podcast. I've listened to a few of them. <laughs> so I've really enjoyed it. You do such a good job. I'm honored to be on it. Honored. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, we. Um, it's really fun to do and, and um, really, you know, you're probably the same way where we hear all these amazing, tremendous stories of people overcoming and getting better under <laughs> insane circumstances or traumas or whatever. And so we have this, you know, wealth of of knowledge, but most people don't get that. And so I um I love that people are that I can hear these stories and how and and dispense them so that other people can hear all the amazing stories and meet all the amazing people that that I've met through this process. Yeah, there's so many good resources online now. I, I teamed up with um Matt Finch with like opiate recovery addiction support. He's who's got a great website. He's got ten thousand followers. He's always making videos and YouTube videos and writing books for people. So uh, there's there's just so much good information. But we really try to simplify the and, and add value to the to medication assisted treatment. What it is, what it's not, who it's for, who can benefit, and dispel a lot of myths about medications. Help people access medications. And there, you know, some people, there's lots of people who come in who don't, you know, get on any medications, but it's just important to educate even, even counselors and physicians. A lot of our people who send me, you know, in fact, later this afternoon, I have a pediatrician coming to the office to tour the office to see what we do to help with substance abuse because she is um, tasked now with managing like a juvenile hall and she got recruited and, and now she's She's like, I need to do Suboxone. I don't know how. So she wants to come here to learn how to do it. We were at the American Society of Ketamine Physicians a meeting two weekends ago in Denver. And, you know, and then people see that I'm doing it using ketamine to detox people. 
And they're blown away, like, oh, I guess it makes sense, you know? So we're combining NAD with ketamine, which is really revolutionary. Talk about minimizing withdrawal. So I'm really passionate about biohacking recovery, mm-hmm. and especially biohacking detox. Yeah. I love, I, love taking, I love taking really challenging, frustrated patients who have tried detoxing off everything and bring them in the clinic for a couple of weeks and seeing what we can do. We can put on a bridge device. We can give them ketamine. We can try NAD. We can try, you know, little nat homeopathic doses of buprenorphine if we need to. And so it's really rewarding to, to see people feel better and detox and, yeah. and get their lives back. And again, everyone's got a different everyone's got a different story, right? I mean, you got to meet people where they are. So some people are in Suboxone, some people can do it without it's great. Whatever people need, it's just figuring it out and then providing solutions. Do you ever detox people off of, um, you know, think medicate like medications like Effexor or you know, people difficult psychiatric meds that people have been on? Because I know that's something that I see where people, you know, are on that. Well, that's a great question. I get calls about that. I'll, I have people counting grains out of their, you know, antidepressant capsules. Yeah. Um, Usually, the answer is usually I don't. Usually, I, I have some psychiatrist friends who can transition them to a different medication. But when we, but the answer is we have and we do it. But it's um, and we usually use NAD. So okay. yeah, those are our NAD patients, right? So we'll you know we'll use NAD for opiates and alcohol, but we'll use it for antidepressants as well. Okay. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. Well, I am so grateful for your time and also hope that. Someday you will get the chance to educate lots of other physicians about, you know, how to treat this and, and from a place of, uh, of reputability. Yeah. Right. Um, because I think that's really, I, I think that's really important is the next piece of this is disseminating and getting physicians and people in places where they're seeing this to believe that we, you know, that we can a biohack it and b that it's a, that it's a real thing. Yeah, it's a real thing, and it's not it's not cookie cutter, right? Yeah, I mean, it's like it's not like oh, you can just take this. You need five units of insulin. No, you need ten units of insulin. And there's people who don't need suboxone. There's people who need to do things differently in their lives. There's people who just need tools. Yeah, they need tools. That's why I'm the only per medical provider in my clinic. I've got a whole team of clinicians and therapists and counselors and nutritionists and office staff and nursing. And I mean, the medicine's the easy part, honestly. Oh, t- I totally, yeah. totally That's agree. It, it, yeah, the medicine's the easy part. I can sit down and talk to people, but it's my counseling. I, we have a, you know, we have groups. We have evening groups. We have day groups. We have individual therapy, and I, and that's what what I love to see. And is people who who put the effort in, you know, and, and if people put as much work into the recovery as they work as they did into using, they would, they would do great. <laughs> they, would have, they have great outcomes. Yeah. That's what I was always told. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time, Ken, exactly. and uh, we'll get everybody to subscribe to your YouTube channel. Okay. You first. Okay. I will. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right. Thanks Bye. for having me. Thank you. The Courage to Change, a recovery podcast, would like to thank our sponsor, Lion Rock Recovery, for their support. Lion Rock Recovery provides online substance abuse counseling where you can get help from the privacy of your own home. For more information, visit www.lionrockrecovery.com backslash podcast. 
Subscribe and join our podcast community to hear amazing stories of courage and transformation. We are so grateful to our listeners and hope that you will engage with us. Please email us comments, questions, anything you want to share with us, how this podcast has affected you. Our email address is podcast at lionrockrecovery.com. We want to hear from you. 